Good afternoon. Welcome to On the Arts, KALW's weekly radio magazine of the performing arts in the Bay Area. I'm Angie Cuero, sitting in this week for David Latulib. Coming up after the news, a striking play from the African-American Shakespeare Company. A look back at Japanese internment camps and the injustice that persists. And to lighten it up at the end, Leonardo da Vinci in stop action animation. That's coming up next after the news. BBC News with Sue Montgomery. The US Supreme Court has agreed to decide if former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 US presidential election. Arguments in the case have been scheduled for late April. Here's Peter Bowes. Donald Trump's claims have already been rejected by a lower court and he claims that uh, he is uh, immune to this kind of uh, criminal prosecution because he was president at the time. Mr Trump faces multiple charges, including one that he uh, conspired to defraud the United States. This was a trial that was due to start very soon. Of course, seemingly one of Donald Trump's tactics has always been to try to delay, to delay, delay these uh, legal proceedings against him while he focuses on his campaigning. The Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, says he will step down from his position in November. He's the longest-serving leader, holding the office for almost two decades. The BBC's Washington correspondent, Gary O'Donoghue, said it's the end of an era. When you think Mitch McConnell first came to this place in 1985, in the middle of Ronald Reagan's term, he's out... He's outlasted the whole kind of Bush dynasty, President Obama, President Clinton and Trump as well. He's really seen the Republican Party disappear from under his feet. Uh, And in many ways, he's also fallen out of favour with those who are now in control of the party, including Donald Trump. He is 82. He has had some health concerns. So this is not entirely surprising. But the political realities are also against him. And uh, he says now it's time for a new generation. President Joe Biden has been declared fit for duty with no new health worries, according to his annual physical examination. Earlier this month, a special counsel investigating Mr Biden for improperly storing classified documents suggested he was suffering from mental decline due to his age. The U.S. has said it firmly supports Moldova's territorial integrity after officials in the breakaway region of Transnistria called on Russia for protection. More details from Vitaly Shevchenko. Russia has a large military base there which allows it to exercise a significant amount of control over what's happening in Transnistria. In fact, it's doubtful that Transnistria would exist as a breakaway entity from Moldova if this Russian base was not there. And secondly, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine started after a Russia-backed and Russia-installed figures in eastern Ukraine had asked Russia for assistance. So this is a development that needs to be watched closely. BBC News. The UN's World Food Programme has confirmed that the Cuban government has asked it to help provide milk to children on the island for the first time in its history. The request was officially transmitted to the WFP last year. Will Grant reports. Cuba's government has long provided a certain number of subsidised basic foodstuffs, including powdered milk, under a ration book system. However, in times of economic difficulty, it has struggled to guarantee that provision. In recent months, it has repeatedly referred to the shortages in powdered milk as becoming critical. Principally, it blames the lack of basic foods in Cuba on the decades-long US economic embargo, while its critics say mismanagement of the country's centralised economy is behind the problem. The Attorney General's office in Ecuador says five suspects accused of involvement in the assassination of an anti-corruption presidential candidate will go to trial. Fernando Villavicencio was shot dead in Quito last August. Two of those who will be tried are senior figures in the Los Lobos criminal gang. 
Europe's climate monitor says wildfires in Brazil, Venezuela and Bolivia have generated the highest level of carbon emissions for the month of February in two decades. The Copernicus Atmosphere Monitoring Service says an extended drought across South America had helped to drive blazes that have scorched parts of the region. The American stand-up comedian Richard Lewis, one of the stars of the television series Curb Your Enthusiasm, has died at his home in Los Angeles. He was 76. His publicist said he'd suffered a heart attack. Nicknamed the Prince of Pain, Richard Lewis was known for poking fun at his own neuroses and hypochondria during his comedy routines. Paying tribute, the comedian Bill Burr called him fearless and a true original. BBC News. This is On The Arts. We're so glad you're listening online, on air. If this is your podcast, welcome. I'm Angie Quero, hosting while David Latrolip is on the other side of the glass. He's in the control room. Our first guests today have worked together to produce Pipeline at the African-American Shakespeare Company. Opening night is March 15th at the Taub Atrium Theater in San Francisco. Pipeline is the story of a Black public school teacher and her son. She ends up enrolling him in private school, all of this against the background of America's notorious school-to-prison pipeline. The play was written by MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Dominic Morisseau, directed by Peter Callender, artistic director of the company, and features Leontine Mbella Mbong as the mother and teacher, Naya. And we are so fortunate to have all three with us this afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very, very much, Angie. Actually, we open on March 16th. March 16th. 16th, correct. I was going to cram everybody in there early. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. But thank you. Do- Dominique, it's so good to see you again. Hi, it's good to see you too. Thank you. Thanks for taking this time. I know you're super busy. Thank you so much. In fact, Dominique, I'm going to start with you because you bring to this more than a playwright's imagination. You spent time in the Detroit schools, and I want to know how that informs the play for you. I did spend time in Detroit schools, but I actually spent the most time in New York City schools. And oh. um, and so I also lived in New York for 15 years of my life, 17, really. And uh, and most of the play is inspired by a little bit of my mom, who was an educator for 40 years in the Detroit area and my time working with her. So I only taught in Detroit full time for a year. Uh, I taught in New York City for 17 years. Um oh. And so, uh, yeah. And so it's spent from, from both of those experiences. Um, but pipelines inspired by that time that I spent in public school and private school as an educator. Um, and also inspired by, um, honestly, the, the number one thing that's inspired by is, uh, Michael Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, who, when Mike Brown was killed, uh, said, I just got him to graduate. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me um, because I thought then she's saying something about what that takes and what it means in this current climate and the school to prison pipeline climate to be able to get her son to graduation only to then have him taken from her. Um, I, I thought that 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 space that she lived in is what I started to imagine um, so many black mothers of young teenage sons and what they were experiencing and going through and the fear and the concerns that they have over their fragility in this country. And I just wanted to invoke some of that for this play. You know, we've got, a, we've got a very smart, informed audience, and I'm sure they have at least some knowledge of the school to prison pipeline. Uh, students of color are published differently, or pardon me, punished differently than their white counterparts. Severe punishment is much more likely there to happen. Tell me what you saw about how this plays out in real life. I've seen it many times um, as an educator. You know, I've seen it in the simple fact that all over New York City and I used to teach in New York City high schools and what um, Giuliani had uh, penned as the Dirty Dozen, which were the 12 most dangerous high schools in New York City. I've worked in all of them. Um, and you had to go into those schools. Uh, when there were metal detectors at every one of those schools, all of the schools. So I was very conditioned to walking into schools with very agitated and disgruntled students before they even got into class because they went through so much harassment. I mean, imagine going to the airport every day. Hmm. <laughs> That's the pain in the ass. 
<laughs> for everybody. I, I travel a lot and I cannot stand security. And my, my last experience of security uh, very recently when I traveled from um, New York to Detroit was horrific at JFK. <laughs> and I was, uh, it was, it made me, it made everybody. We were like violent and angry toward each other. Do you know? We were not pleasant because of the experience of, of what it took to get in that door to get to our airplane. It was so horrible. Um, okay, I, I could not imagine every day going through that and then needing to have my mind open and ready for learning. That's ridiculous. That's a really interesting parallel, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, Leontine, uh, Naya's son Omari, uh, one plot summary says he's not dealing well with the absence of his father. So where is dad and how is she trying to compensate for his not being there? Um, dad is around, I would say, more emotionally unavailable than physically necessarily absent. They don't live in the same household, but I think that if Omari... Like if that if Xavier wanted to, had the language to, had the capacity to reach out and touch his son physically and emotionally, that he could be there. Um, so it isn't an absent father in the fact that he's like gone from the scene altogether. Um, he and Naya are dealing with a personal um adult business, grown-up business um, between them. And that has affected his relationship with Omari. And um, and and I think that Naya is having to, is trying to preserve Omari, to preserve Omari's connection to the neighborhood where she has chosen to live and where he exists. Um, and, uh, and that in a way Xavier has rejected. Um, and so she's kind of struggling to to maintain that balance of just like, what is Omari's in, environment? Um, it doesn't specify exactly who, <laughs> who made the decision to send him to Fernbrook. We obviously have speculations on that. <laughs> you, have, you have Dominique here who can answer that for you. Um, <laughs> But uh, but there was a decision made to send him out of that environment. And so now it's dealing with, OK, so I made this decision, hopefully for his for his good. And oh, my God, it hasn't had the effect that was desired. Mm. And now what? Tell me about your research into creating her as a character. Um. I read the books that are mentioned in the play, um, Native Son and Invisible Man. And um, it really, it, it, it put me in a position of trying to figure out what Naya is trying to figure out about her son, um, uh, what she is trying to learn, and also the distance that she has from the literature that she teaches versus the real life that she is looking at in her son. Um, and, uh, and so it's kind of trying to find that mindset of where, what, like examining what her fears are for him mm-hmm. and, and where she lives in, in balancing the fact that she is in this environment herself as a teacher versus his personal experience of it. And how right. sometimes there can be a disconnect between between that. I'm going to school, I'm going to work, and this is just my environment until it's like, oh, my God, this has hit me in a totally personal way that, yes, I had anticipated, but also not entirely because I thought that I had set him up for something different. And it didn't work. And I mm. don't know what to do or how to fix it. And by extension, then... You know, one can imagine what does she do about her students and what can she do about her world at large, right? But like mm-hmm. at the moment, it's it's him and her personal responsibility for him. Um, so yeah, so thinking about things like that, uh, Peter. This sounds it sounds so rich. It sounds so layered. But I'm sure there's no shortage of rich layered plays that are submitted to the African American Shakespeare Company. So what bar did Pipeline meet that's bringing it to us? 
Oh my gosh. Um, thank you for that question. It is uh, certainly one of my favorite pieces. I'm a big, I'm a huge fan of Dominique's work. I've directed uh, Skeleton Crew. Uh, this is my third time directing Pipeline. Um, the, the play, the play wakes people up. It, it starts in Native Son, Richard Wright begins with an alarm going off. And it is written that that alarm was to wake up America to this issue. Um, Dominique has skillfully placed um, school bells throughout her play. In this production, I'll be starting with that bring as to wake people up to understand what this story is about, what this um, problem is in America, in American schools. Um, so the, the bar is set tremendously high with this play. Um, it is it is it is a play that that requires everyone's participation. It it indicts everybody at the same time. Um, there's a part of the play, and I won't give too much away. There's a part of the play where I'm actually turning up the lights in the audience, so that no one gets to hide, mm. no one gets to sit there in the dark. We need everybody's attention to be aware of this play, um, so that when they leave, they feel that they they too have been indicted in in understanding what what this play means to american uh, uh black and brown kids to uh, uh the, the school teachers the moms the dads the neighbors the psychologists the analysts the the uh, parole officers i mean everybody is indicted in this play and uh, I, I and I always feel that whenever I read this play, and again, this is my third time directing it. I'm learning so much more about this play uh, because of its richness. Well, tell me about the changes of one production to the next, what you bring to it that's fresh. Well, first of all, you have different actors. So different actors bring a certain different style, a different rhythm, a different tone to the play. Um, also, um, in in looking at this play again, I have reread, and it's always it's always here on my desk. Um, uh, Richard Wright's Native Son, and um, there are things that I'm learning about the play that I did not glean earlier on when I first directed this play. And Dominique uh, was so gracious when when I first directed the play to give us almost about almost an hour of her time uh, talking about the play. And I'll never forget that. And I'll always be grateful for that, Dominique. But um, I'm learning so much more textually as to see where the threads overlap where with Native Son and Dominique's experiences and an invisible man and how the play blends, how the play and the novel blends into each other. And it's so expertly done. And I the the more I look at it, the more I read and reread Native Son, the more I'm the deeper understanding I'm having of this play. Uh, Dominique, let me take this over to you, because I know one of the jobs of a playwright is to make most of the characters at least relatable. You have to have at least if I'm correct, you have to have at least one relatable person on that stage. And I'm thinking in terms of Naya and how specific you were able to make her fears for her son. In a sense, I'm thinking that most mothers watching that, especially women of color, would relate to her in at least the free-floating dread of, I have a Black son. I know what he's facing. Maybe he's too young to know what he's facing. But then again, you can only make it so generic, applicable to everyone. There are some very specific fears she has based on him and his personality, who he is as a human being. Can you talk about that distinction? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm, as a writer, I try to uh, resist the, uh, I don't know, it's not really an urge. <laughs> um, the pressure, maybe, um, the social pressure of trying to do something to my characters to make them relatable, to you know, m- make them other people see themselves in them. I that I don't feel like is my work. I do feel like my work is to make them truthful, um, and to make them honest, and to and to make sure that I am the people that I'm writing about. Those people who mirror those experiences will come and see themselves truthfully and honestly and not feel um, underwritten or under uh, underexplored as people and, and their humanity. Um, but that is really that's all I think I owe people. I don't feel like I owe um you know, what I always call, I mean, you're using relatable. I, I sometimes use the phrase likability. You know, mm-hmm. I never quite... Um, 
I think we have a, a, a obsession with likability. I mean, I mean that as a culture. I mean that as like how many likes you get on Facebook. I mean, you know, I mean, we are very obsessed with likability and we always have been. And and for black characters in particular, I, I get this as a writer a lot from producing entities and you know, executives at places. I mean, I get a lot of like, we want to like them more or we want to like this more. And I go, oh man, that's rough. Uh, I don't know what makes anybody like somebody, you know? Um, I don't believe humanity is, con- our humanity, anyone's humanity, and in particular black humanity is not conditional to their likability, you know? So like when Mike Brown was killed, the first thing that went out and viral was like all these pictures of him giving his middle finger to the camera so that we could not like him. And so if we didn't like him, therefore we'd be all right with him getting killed <laughs> at the age of 17. There's nothing you can show me about that young child that would make me okay with him dying at 17 years old. And and I think that there's a, uh, that's that's the problem we have socially. So I'm trying to actually actively, consciously, what I am conscious of is trying to debunk that. I'm here to say that no matter whether you're, I mean, every teenager, you know, has an asshole period, you know, <laughs> what I call they're like, where they're just like not the most likable. I mean, who likes teenagers all the time? You know, and this <laughs> is coming from somebody who teaches them and loves them fiercely, but not only have to like them all the time to love them. Um, and I think that I don't have to like them to fight for their humanity and for their lives to have value and meaning and to matter. And so I would like to, I am asking actually, even in this story, for us to get over that um quite a bit i'm asking for us to get over whether he's nice or not you know he's got an unfinished list this kid is unfinished mm-hmm. who, who cares about why how likable he is he should be here he should be making mistakes and he should be growing um and that's what i feel for even for naya you know i think there's a, a consciousness of black women and for black women characters to also need for people to see them so they need to like almost like you need to do something to make yourself likable to people, you don't have to do anything. Just be the person. Be. I'm just going to tell your story true, and enough people will see their humanity in you. What they can see their humanity in themselves. If they can't see themselves in you, that's not my fail. That's theirs. <laughs> you know. And so I look at that as not my job. My job is to tell it true. And if I tell it true enough, enough people, truth resonates louder than anything. Truth is the universal language. And so even though truth is not an absolute. For everyone, but it is a universal language. So when something resonates, it resonates across boundary of all kind, whether it's gender or race or culture or region or country or land, it transcends. And that's what I try to be obedient to. That is a brilliant place to leave this. And I thank you all. I hope that we've brought some attention to what sounds like an amazing production. So thank you to all of you. Oh my thank God. you so much, Angie. Dominique, thank you for your time. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, guys. Thank you so All much. Right. All right. And we have been talking about the latest from the African-American Shakespeare Company Pipeline at the Tobe Atrium Theater. 401 Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. You can get all kinds of information about that March 16th opening and forward at African-AmericanShakes.org. And we've been talking to Peter Callender, director and artistic director of the company. Dominique Morisot, playwright, and Leontine Mbele Mbong, cast member who plays the mother, Naya. You are listening to On the Arts on KALW Local Public Radio. Later in the show, we'll be talking about Leonardo versus the Pope. One more time in a new venue, stop action animation. That's coming up later on On the Arts. Music from Pipeline here on On the Arts. And we're going to move on to an important film about a shameful chunk of American history. This film came out in 2019, took a slew of festival awards, Alternative Facts, The Lies of Executive Order 9066, 
tells the story of the Japanese-American internment camps. We're going to talk about that phrase in just a moment, too. It covers the topic from its earliest beginnings with Chinese workers in the U.S. coming in to work farms and build railroads through the battle for justice long after the camps were emptied, right up to the Trump administration's echoes of the era in his policies and rhetoric. If you missed this when it first came out, you have a new chance. It is tonight. Alternative Facts will screen at 6.30 at the Bay School Film and Panel Event at the Presidio Theater. We're going to talk with the film's director, John Osaki. He has won awards for his work, including directing and producing promotional, educational, narrative, and documentary films. His initial interest in film grew from his desire to share the stories of the Japanese Community Youth Council, where he has served as executive director since 1996. John Osaki, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I do have to ask you, this is an oft-told story. You have the feeling that at least most people have an idea that it happened if they don't know it in detail. Tell me what you felt moved to add to what was already out there. Well, so first of all, my father was incarcerated at the Tule Lake Segregation Center. My mother was incarcerated at the Gila River Concentration Camp. And so uh, our family was very aware of what happened during World War II and that it directly affected not just my mother and father, but all of my aunts, uncles, grandparents, basically everybody in our entire families. And so just something we grew up being very aware of. But if you know anything about this community is those who were incarcerated did not talk about it for decades and it was considered very shameful. People felt like it was uh, something that they did not want to impart the trauma on their children. And so we knew kind of bits and pieces of it growing up. And, you know, I work in San Francisco's uh, Japantown. So I'm around a lot of activities and events uh, on this topic. And so I thought, you know, growing up, seeing my parents, uh, receive an apology, receive reparations, this country acknowledging that it made a horrible mistake. Um, I grew up believing that, you know, most of America had an idea that this was just really a, a horrible, tragic injustice that happened in this country. And then 2016 happened. And as I'm sure we're all aware, at that time, there was a presidential election. And I was honestly stunned to hear people talking about the incarceration of Japanese Americans as something that this country needed to do mm. and as something that we might have to revisit because of the threat of refugees, uh, Muslim Americans, um, people immigrating to this country. And I was I was frankly floored that this conversation was making parallels to what happened to my mother and father. And so uh, it, it at that point dawned on me that it's not only important to educate people about this very shameful chapter in American history, but we have to re-educate people. And I think what I tried to do with this film was not only share information that, frankly, I think most people did not know about what really happened and the fact that it was largely based on false information and a cover-up and that when people realized that they had made a mistake in locking up an entire ethnic population, the reaction was not to come clean, say, we made a horrible mistake. It was really to... Uh, cover it up, uh, and ensure that the Amer American public was not aware of it. So I thought that story was really important to tell, but also the parallels to what was taking place in this country at that time. And that as a society, we continue to target communities, uh, blame them for the challenges we have as a society, and that the threats that to democracy that my mother and father experienced are still alive and well in this country. How much were your mother and father willing to tell you 
once once you became an adult? So I think my mother and father were probably more open about it. And honestly, when we really learned about it more so was when my uh, both of my parents were retired and they were sort of more willing to kind of share experiences that they had. And in particular, I'll share just one really quick story. But my father, after he retired, he joined a writing class and he was encouraged to write about his experiences while he was incarcerated. And he wrote a story that really floored my entire family uh, because he shared the experience of being taken away in 1942. And a lot of people don't think about this, but uh, of course, Japanese Americans were only allowed to bring what they could carry. And so not only did they have to leave behind many like really precious assets, they could not bring any of their pets. Mm -hmm. And so my father literally had to watch his dog chase the truck that he was being taken away in for over a mile until that dog was too tired to run anymore. It sat down the middle of the road and he never saw it again. Oh my God. And so those are the kinds of stories that, you know, we eventually learned and it helped us understand what it really felt like to go through that experience. It helps to display, I mean, this is something photographers know, something journalists know, is that it's those little details like that that really bring a story alive. And the very first thing we hear in the movie is a young woman talking about how her, uh, I believe it was her grandmother as a child, had to stuff papers in the openings of the cabin where they were incarcerated so that the sand wouldn't blow in. And I contrast that with, you know, I, I knew a woman in Hawaii when I, when I lived there and worked there, she had been a child in the camps and she said, Oh, it was, it was like camping. We were, we were away from home. We were fine. And I thought how young she must have been. And just as the parents assign the child to say, you help us keep the sand out of here. That's your job. Okay, honey. And the protection that the parents must have felt obligated to give the children to keep the worst of what was going on from them. So a couple of things I wanted to share about that. So first is that young lady that was speaking uh, in the beginning of the film and throughout the film, um, that very opinionated young lady is my daughter. And so it was a wonderful experience to be able to share all this history with her while we were making this film. Um, and so I have no idea where she got so opinionated, but, uh, she's, you know, I, I, it was just a great, wonderful experience to be able to make the film with her. And of course she was talking about her grandmother. And I think that, you know, that scene was, uh, something that we, I just, you know, really loved about the film because it really brought you into that experience and the fact that my mother-in-law June, in fact, I just did an event with her where she spoke about this is that it was actually, she said it was really a full-time job and because they were living in hastily built barracks, right? No electricity, no heat, right? The only thing they had to heat those barracks were a potbelly stove. And so anything they could do to insulate it was really critical, especially uh, these camps were built in some of the areas with the harshest winters. And so that was one of the only ways that they could insulate the inside of the barracks. And she also just recently shared with me, again, something that I had never heard before, but she shared that that uh, camp she was in, uh, which was Topaz, there were, uh, it was, you know, there were tons of scorpions in that area. And so they had to seal up these cracks in the barracks to keep, to make sure scorpions didn't come into the barracks because a lot of people did get stung by them. And so, you know, those are the kinds of stories that I think people, when they read about this chapter in American history and textbooks don't necessarily appreciate. So I really wanted to, to bring that out in my film. There are all kinds of layers as to who was involved in getting this 
mass internment of people taken away from their homes, taken away from their lives, and put into cabins, put into barracks. And it seemed to me that they broke down into the merely ill-informed, you know, people who were relying on those below them to provide information about were Japanese Americans dangerous? Were they co-conspirators with Japan? You know, did they talk to people in subs off the coast that, in fact, were not there to begin with? Um, and then there are those who were openly evil. You know, there's one person who insisted to his death that there was no barbed wire around some of those camps when he bloody knew. I mean, there's no, there's no excuse for that. The inactively evil person. And finally... And we see these two, we have the heroes. We have those at the time who were willing to shout into the wind and say, this is unjust. We all came from Asia at some point. That's all of us. And those moving into the future who said, we're going to reclaim what is ours and we're going to get an apology from the U.S. And those are the the three different kinds of characters that I saw in there, the the ill-informed, the deeply evil, and the heroes that came out of it as well. Yes. One of the things that I found most striking while doing the research for this film is that every intelligence agency that actually had like credible information about the Japanese American population unanimously concluded that they were not a threat to national security. Everyone. And yet, despite that, what unfortunately took place, and I'm, I'm very excited about tonight because the screening is going to take place in the Presidio, uh, where the Western Defense Command used to have its headquarters. And so it's actually from one of those buildings that uh, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt issued the military orders to incarcerate Japanese Americans. And he was actually quoted, this is shortly after Pearl Harbor, after Pearl Harbor. He was quoted as saying that he did not think it was common sense procedure to intern 117,000 Japanese Americans because an American citizen, after all, is an American citizen. That's what he said shortly after Pearl Harbor. But what took place was a whirlwind of of, of groups taking advantage of the situation. There were, of course, exclusionists who had been trying to get rid of Japanese since the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were public uh, elected officials or aspiring elected officials like Earl Warren, who used this fear of the Pearl Harbor attack and towards Japanese Americans to win the election for California's governor in 1942. And then there were the farmers who saw Japanese Americans as an economic threat and seeing that this was an opportunity to not only get rid of a competitor, but to take their land. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what happened. And it's so unfortunate that, uh, unfortunately, the history books don't dive that deeply into what happened because I think you can see, we can all see how situations today there are public officials who are willing to jump all over it to win elections yes, and to gain power in this country. So I think what happened in 1942 is so important to our nation, to our country, to be able to learn from and to be better from. I do want to give attention to Aiko Yoshinaga, who definitely shines as a hero in this. We have just a very couple minutes left, but can you give us a thumbnail sketch of this incredible woman? Absolutely. It was the highlight of making this film. I was able to bring my daughter with me to go. We spent the day with her filming that interview and she was just incredible. She was 93 when we did that interview and her memory was just unbelievable. And unfortunately, she passed uh, six months after we did that interview. So she never got to see the completed film. But the thing that I always like to share with audiences is that Aiko had no formal training in archival documents or how they were categorized or stored. She was just a individual who was committed to finding the truth. And I think that's such an important lesson for all of us is that you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be in some 
high-powered position to really change the course of history because that's really what she did. My final question has to do with something I referred to earlier. As we discuss this, as the film has been out there, as people are looking at the injustice, we've heard internment camps, we've heard incarceration camps, we've heard relocation camps. What to you is the most appropriate wording to use around this? So I know we only have a little bit of time, so I'll try to get through this quickly. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's an involved uh, answer, but the, the term that most Japanese Americans are comfortable with is actually concentration camp. And I know that that can be kind of controversial in some circles, but the reason being is that the actual definition of concentration camp is a place where people are detained for political reasons. Um, the, the actual definition of internment camp is a place where people are detained because they're enemy aliens. Okay. Japanese Americans were two thirds of them were American citizens and they were, they were just at the discretion of U.S. government deemed enemy aliens, but they, the majority really were not. And so we've always felt that there's been a ton of euphemisms used to de-emphasize the severity of what took place. And that's again, not to in any way compare the experience to the Holocaust and what the Jewish community went to. It's that's not the intention at all. It's just merely to make sure that there's a term that we define for what took place and what happened to our own community. I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to see the film. It's great. And I hope so many people can make it tonight. Thank you very much. And we have been talking about alternative facts, the lies of Executive Order 9066. It's uh, presented tonight as part of the Base School film. There's a panel event as well at the Presidio Theater, 99 Moraga Avenue in San Francisco. And John Osaki is the creator and director of the film. There's more to come on a very different note. We'll take a pause here. I'm Angie Quero in for David Latulipe on Today's on the Arts. Although President Reagan acknowledged that the incarceration of Japanese Americans was a mistake, he stopped short of calling it what it really was, a scandal of epic proportions. Government lawyers intentionally destroyed and altered and suppressed evidence regarding the loyalty of Japanese Americans. Government lawyers also presented to the court false evidence regarding the commission by Japanese Americans of That's an excerpt from tonight's film, and I'm glad we were able to bring that to you. We are going to go to 16th century Rome, and we're about to meet someone very important, courtesy of Jim Capobianco. He's going to take us back to meet Leonardo da Vinci, as you have never seen him before. Jim, welcome (laughs) aboard. Good to have you here. Uh, Thank you, Angie. It's a real pleasure to be here. We're talking about the film, The Invented, animated feature film, and it was written by Jim and featured at the San Jose State University and Invention in Motion Stop Motion Animation Festival that is this weekend at the Hammer Theater in San Jose. You can find information at hammertheater.com. Jim, this is your your first full-length creation that is all yours but you have all kinds of credits that led you up to that storyboarding and other work on things that people know they know ratatouille they know the lion king they know up and so many more tell me about that urge to break out and do something that was just yours well i think you know i'd been working in animation at that point uh or for like 30 years and like you said, I've worked on like a lot of great films with great people, uh, really talented crews, and uh, and had a big impact on a lot of those films. But I think as a creator, you always want to just keep stretching your uh, wings, if you will. Uh, and uh, I thought the next step I had directed in small, uh, smaller pieces like the Mary Poppins Returns 2D and I directed a short at Pixar called Your Friend the Rat. And, um, and I'd made a short film too about Leonardo da Vinci. So I thought let's, you know, it was time maybe to, to jump into a bigger arena and direct my own film. I think it was more just I like created the story and I needed to make it. And so it's not so much to just to be a director, but to be, uh, to realize this 
film I kind of wanted to see out there? It's a combination of both 3D and 2D, which may be true of a number of stop animation films, but this was truly, I mean, it's evident from the moment you look at it. There are two different kinds of art going here. Mm-hmm. What was that choice about? Yeah, you know, it's, it is a mixture of stop motion animation and drawn animation, traditional animation. And it was important to me that the film kind of evoke a sort of Leonardo da Vinci kind of feeling to it. And those two art forms to me are very much da Vincian, uh, art forms of animation are, are very much da Vincian as opposed to computer animation. Um, though he probably would want to do it in computer animation because he would be so, so curious about it. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, as I said, I've been working in animation for 30 years. So when I first started in animation, I wanted to be a draw, I wanted to work in drawn animation, traditional animation. That's what, what was out there. And I grew up with the Disney films, the Warner Brothers films, and also stop motion and films like the Rankin and Bass, uh, Christmas specials, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town and those films. And, and then later seeing Nightmare Before Christmas and that. So I think for me, I just love those handcrafted art forms. And I thought, this is a Da Vinci film. It should be crafted by hand. It just seems that's more tactile. Uh, you know, in stop motion, you have a lot of different crafts, people who come together, who create the armatures out of metal and they forge them. And you have, uh, people working wood and, and cloth and, and just, and sculpture. So, those all felt very Da Vinci like, and then of course the drawing lending itself to his drawings and his his uh, art that way. And what it came down to too is the the stop motion world because of the restrictions in stop motion because you have to build a puppet that can only do certain things really, and you have gravity and all that. That became the real world in the film. And then because drawn animation, you can draw whatever you can imagine as long as you could draw it you can create it and it has a light, uh, an independence to itself, a, a freedom. Those became the moments when we're in Leonardo's mind and his imaginations and his dreams. And when he brings other characters into his ideas, then we switch to drawn animations. So it's not arbitrarily applied in the film. Right. Right. I want to go to the very pragmatic about creating okay. something this massive. And that is when people think about stop motion animation, they think, wow, that's a slow process frame by frame. The real slow process is getting a project like this up on its legs. <laughs> that, means, that means funding. <laughs> that means, you know, there's a lot between the concept of a film to the point when you finally start those cameras rolling. So yeah. I noticed that Variety had said in 2018 that this is going to happen. And you were hoping to shoot in 2021. And then you started to shoot in 2022. <laughs> and it came out in 2023. And I'm wondering to take that to its very beginnings. You go out there and you look for money and backers. You did crowdfunding, which was brilliant. Yes. And I'm just wondering, what do you need to take to them? You obviously can't give them a finished film and say, look how great this is. Please give me money. (laughs) What is it you have to take out there into the world that's your baby and say, look at this, fund me? Well, I think it was good to have a script. So I wrote a script that you can hand to people and go, here, read it. Um, Lots of artwork, because they can't, even reading a script, uh, you know, executives, money, people, they can't really see the film so much, especially an animated film, you're going to interpret it however you've whatever last animated movie you've seen is what's going to be probably the way you're going to envision it maybe um so i would imagine a lot of executives saw it as like a pixar film because here's a pixar guy trying to make a film so i needed to uh bring on artists to like create artwork and then we made in 2016 a when i just had left pixar uh teaser trailer because i thought let's make a piece of the film or something as close to the film that I would like to make as possible. So we brought in uh, some stop motion animators who had worked on Nightmare Before Christmas. Cause actually in the Bay area, there are quite a few um, stop motion people who still live here who went off to work at Pixar and stuff um, to go into computer animation, uh, but who had worked on Nightmare Before Christmas and other films. So, cause that was made up here. Right. And um, so we brought, on a bunch of people to make a teaser 
and we, I wanted it to look as close to the film as we possibly could. We had a little dissection in there because that was one of the pushbacks we got from some money people are like, Oh, this is for kids, but you're going to have dissection. That's going to be gross. Kind of like, well, kids like gross, but anyway, I, <laughs> I envisioned it like not gross and pulling out intestines or anything is very lyrical and, and poetic. So I, I wanted to, if dissection can be. <laughs> I wondered where you were going with that when I saw the body under the sheet, and I thought, okay, what's he going to do here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I wanted to show the 2D and the um, uh, stop motion would work together, so that's in the teaser. So, once we made that, that was very helpful to, like, go, well, here, this is what it'll look like. I think you have to show and not tell so much. Um, so, right. yeah, it was a lot of work. It took us 10 years to find money and wow. the partners and, and all that. I want to talk about the animation you had brought up, you know, all the people that you brought on board. And mm-hmm. I've got kind of a, of a two-part question here for you. One is okay. all animation has ancestors. You know, you think all the way back to uh, the Betty Boop, the studio that produces Betty Boop and all those sure. wonderful jerky movements. Yeah. And then you have, you know, the puppetry that you saw in the Muppets, and they have little signatures throughout. Mm-hmm. You can see, okay, mm-hmm. that has the ancestor of the Muppets. I want to know, first of all, who you feel the ancestors of the inventor are. And secondly, okay. how you convey that to a group of artists. So they're simultaneously bringing their skill set, but they're honoring what you want to do and where you're coming from. Right. Well, I think probably the biggest influence were those Christmas specials, the Rankin and Bass <laughs> so, stop motion um, Christmas specials. Uh you know, I they, I watch them still every year with my kids, and my kids now are twenty and fifteen, and we still watch them. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was a big touchstone. Uh, actually, Charlie Brown, in a weird way, because I always, I always, I'm a very, I'm very much attracted to simple shapes in animation, and the way the film is designed, it's very designed in a very graphic, simple way in some respects, and so even the way. Peanuts would use, and everything's designed with little dot eyes. So, because I have, I have an affinity for that look. And so, when you look at like peanuts, you see they do these add these little lines for like expressions and things. So that was like something we would add into the feature film and decide when we would add them and things. Mm-hmm. But I would have to show these films because we made the film in France, and they have a different kind of aesthetic or idea to art forms of stop motion and animation than we do a bit. And I had to show them the Christmas specials because they didn't really know them. So that was... That's cultural deprivation right there. Yeah, (laughs) I guess so. Um, So, you know, I had to kind of, again, show what I would see how I saw this film. Um, The other probably stop motion touchstone were the old Jiri Trinka. They would know that stuff, which is Czech Czech animation, stop motion animation. There's a huge tradition, stop motion animation in, in uh, former Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic. Um, so Jiri Trinka and Carl Zeman were big uh, influences as well. And then actually in contemporary wise, there's an animation studio down in LA. They'll be happy I'm promoting them, uh, Screen Novelties. And they made, it's the little tiny company, and their influences are these same stop motion influences as mine were. And they made a, a film for a Christmas special, a modern Christmas special called Buddy the Elf's Christmas Musical based on the Elf movie. Um, and I guess the musical that was made for Broadway. And, uh, it actually has this same feel to it, very designed, um, uh, with simple shapes. And the animation is very broad for stop motion, much more like a 2D drawn animation feeling fluidity to it even though they're puppets. And so that's what I wanted to look at. So I showed the French that as well, which they had no idea of. <laughs> so um, again, yeah, it's just like getting people into your brain. The best way to do it is to draw a picture, show them videos to go, here's where I'm thinking, paint pictures. You know, it's really, really the way to go. Mm-hmm. It's harder to convey a vibe. 
I know that you can show people a picture and say, this is where we want to go with the picture. Yeah. But when you're putting together a whole production and you've got animators and you've got voice artists and, you know, you have the people mm-hmm. who are working right next to the director. Tell me how, I don't know if this is too complex a question, but if you can, tell me how a vibe is created and shared. So you're all on the same, ta- same page there. Yeah. Well, again, I think it's pulling out everything I adore. So I showed, I talked about Charlie Chaplin. I talked about, um, you know, back in France, there was a great um, film comedian as well, uh, Jacques Tati, who uh, worked pretty much, even though his films have sound, it's pretty much pantomime. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ways he moves. It's all about how his movements are and the visual storytelling in his frame. So I would bring up examples of these other films and talk to them about that. And um, I would act out things for them to go, this is how I kind of see things moving. I would try to do that. Um, I think, yeah, it's just a process of hopefully the people you bring in. My co-director, uh, Pierre-Luc Grandjean, his films I actually looked at when I was looking for different stop motion films to be inspired by. And he had made a bunch of films, four films called the four seasons of Lyon. And they're very charming. They're very beautiful. And, um, I, uh, I was inspired by these. So I never thought I'd meet this guy. <laughs> and, uh, when I started with Folioscope studios, where we made the film in France, uh, the head of the studio, Ilan Rose said, Oh, Pierre Luke's worked with us. Do you want to meet him? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe he could be your co-director. And I was like, wait, no way. This is impossible. <laughs> and we met and we were like two long lost brothers who got separated at birth or something. We just so connected in such a big way. And obviously I loved his work. And so we had that um, sensibility was the same. So that was a very fortuitous and very much uh, helped the production. And then Pierre Luc ended up bringing on because he had worked where he works is in France and his teams were people he grew up with at school from school. And, and he kept working with, he brought his team onto my, our film. So then I inherited his group. Then they all had a shorthand together and obviously they've worked to him. They understand his sensibility. His sensibility was close to mine. So all those things started to come together in a very natural way. It was really magical, actually, how that all, all came together. You mentioned a couple of times computer animation. And it mm-hmm. makes me wonder, you know, if you could yank out a crystal ball right now and say, what is going to happen to that beautiful art of manipulating pieces by hand and creating characters out of felt and out of clay? <laughs> Do you see that enduring? Oh, yes. Because, you know, what? stop motion animation is the original form of animation. It's where, where it's almost the original form of filmmaking. And it has lasted for over 100 years and it keeps coming back and it keeps people more and more people are making films with it you saw last year we had uh, Guillermo del Toro making Pinocchio uh, Wes Anderson keeps using the process so like these big Hollywood directors who you know everybody has respect for it not like animation people who is <laughs> like we're always the second banana group in in the filmmaking world um but uh you know these people are always interested in it it never ages like it it will never uh, it's timeless medium whereas computer animation although it's evolved quite a bit since my career uh, uh i've seen it like grow from very rudimentary to what it can do now um is gets dated because the technology keeps changing and you can kind of tell okay that Toy Story was made at this era, this film was made at this era, and this film, you know, so it, it, it gets dated, but computer animation, I mean, stop motion animation will never date. It'll always be evergreen. If you could bring my, my inner child out, I'll say yay, yay for yes, that. Yes, <laughs> it, it does. It appeals to children, our inner child, because it looks like a little toy is moving around. <laughs> the it's felt on so Rudolph's special. head. I remember looking at that. Oh, yeah. uh, Jim Capobianco, thank you so much. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Angie. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And we have been talking about the film that will be featured at the San Jose State University and Invention in Motion Stop Motion yeah. Animation Festival, Hammer and Theater, this weekend. Oh, and, it, and it's available on VOD and all your digital platforms to rent and buy. So you can go right now and go watch the film. There you go. I'm glad you got that in there. For yeah, this weekend's <laughs> event, look up HammerTheater.com. And thanks to everyone who helped put this show together today, including David LaTulipe and the amazing producer, Janice Lee. Thank you for tuning in to On the Arts. I'm Angie Cuero. This is KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Union City. In the 69th Village. Dogpatch. 